Well, let me add my thanks and welcome those of you that are joining us in person, but also at home through the means of technology. Um, I want you to do there in your home the same thing that you would do if you were gathered here, and that includes opening your Bible. Open it to Isaiah chapter 8, and uh, let me just say as we get through the service today, we've reserved some time at the end for some more worship. So stay with us all the way to the end, because I believe at the end of what we're about to read, your heart is going to want to erupt in worshiping our great God. Um, I have to let you know, as we've been going through these uh, very practical, applicable sections of Scripture that we know is the book of Isaiah, um, I was a little nervous headed into Thanksgiving weekend because I told you a couple of weeks ago what the recurring themes are in Isaiah. It is these three themes. It's just over and over and over. We're either reading about sin, we're reading about God's judgment on sin, or we're reading about hope. And I was so fearful that we would get to Thanksgiving weekend and I would open to a passage and all we're looking at is sin and judgment. I was so hoping we might find some hope. And sure enough, the passages we're going to read are some of the most hope-filled verses in your Bible. If I do my job right, you do your job right, then we're going to want to worship at the end of this message. Now, I have to let you know, I've, I've bitten off more than I can chew here in what we're going to examine. So I've tried to do everything I can to sum it up in one sentence. Everything I'm going to say is built off of this statement. So if you don't hear anything else, just lean into this, passage, this statement. Gospel gratitude is sustained by a trust in a promised future while being honest about present circumstances. Title of the message today is Gospel Gratitude. We're going to learn that there's, there's two different types of gratitude. And it's easy to be grateful when things are great. And it's harder to be grateful in the year 2020. How many of you found it a little harder on Thanksgiving Day to find some things to list that you were thankful for in 2020? Well, Gospel Gratitude, the kind of gratitude that we're going to talk about is sustained by a trust. That's the theme of the section of Scripture we're going to float through here. And, and the trust is in a promised future. God has promised some things are going to take place. And so our gratitude is based not on the things that are realities right now. We can be grateful for things that have yet to happen. We're going to study what those things are while being honest about how miserable life really is right now, okay? Christians don't put their head in the sand. Christians don't live with a Pollyanna worldview, just thinking everything is rosy. We don't see life through rose-colored glasses. As a matter of fact, we see it in reality, which means it's actually worse than it actually appears. And yet, in spite of all that, we can have a gospel gratitude because our gratitude is sustained by trust in what we're looking forward to while being honest about how Awful 2020 is. That's where we're going, and we're going to see it all from Scripture here. Jonathan Edwards is the one that kind of distinguished between gospel gratitude and natural gratitude. Let me show you the difference here. There's a natural gratitude that even unbelievers have. If you don't know God, if you're an atheist, when good things happen to you, God has hardwired into the human heart an impulse to be grateful. So, 
A natural gratitude looks at present circumstances. And if you can find anything to be happy about, good food, good friends, you've got family, there's not six inches of snow on the ground until tomorrow, then because things are good, I can be grateful. I mean, that's just common courtesy, right? You complete the circle. I remember when our kids were young, it was great to have Brooke, my daughter, up here singing this morning. And I remember when Brooke was was so cute. She's about one years old. And, and there was a phenomena that happened twice a day for our family that you have to understand. This will explain a lot about our family, okay? Now, remember, I've told you this. 15 years prior to planting this church, we spent on the road, living in an RV travel trailer, basically going to a different church every week. And the churches were nice. They would feed us two meals a day, lunch and dinner. So for lunch and dinner every day, we would bring our children in and we would display how our family consumes food in front of the entire church while I'm teaching the church proper parenting principles, how to raise courteous, godly, grateful kids, okay? So this was a test twice a day. Can you imagine your family eating twice a day in front of the rest of the church? How, how any, anybody want to put a video up of how that goes uh, with a one-year-old present? So one of the things that, that we found helpful was to teach our children some sign language because somebody told us, hey, kids can communicate. They just can't form the words yet. If you can teach them some sign language, you can actually teach them some common courtesy, you can teach them please and thank you. Does everybody know the sign language for please? What's please? Does everybody know this? Is some of this, right? And does everybody know the sign language for more? If you want more, what's that? It's this, right? And then thank you. Everybody? There you go. So we got please, we got more, and we got thank you, which comes in handy unless your one-year-old wants more peanut butter and jelly. All right, so they've already had peanut butter and jelly, which is now stuck to their fingers, which are now stuck together. And if they're going to say, please, after the first peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then thank you, it's, it's just an absolute mess. But it's common courtesy that we know you're supposed to be grateful. If I do something nice for you, I'm a, I appreciate your appreciation of my generosity. If you're not grateful when somebody does good things, then people are not going to do good things for you because we don't want to be hurt by your ungratefulness. And so people are actually attracted to gratitude and they're repulsed by ingratitude. Now, that's just the way the world works. You don't even have to be a Christian. Just be nice. Just be courteous, right? The kind of gratitude that we're talking about today is different. Gospel gratitude doesn't just look at present circumstances. Gospel gratitude looks forward to future realities that are promised in Scripture by a trustworthy God. And that means that I'm not just grateful when good things are happening. I am grateful because God is always good. And if I can't find anything good happening, I can still be grateful because God is always good. And that kind of gratitude requires more than courtesy. It requires trust. And you can only trust God 
if you find him to be trustworthy, has he kept his promises in the past? And can I trust that he will keep his promises in the future? So, all we've got to do is open up the Bible and see if we can complete this. Can we find anything to look forward to? Can we find any evidence that God is good? And can we trust what God's Word has to say? Okay? So, we're going to look at a section here. Now, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. Just let me set it up a little bit. Chapters 7 through 12 are one big section. Okay? I'm going to kind of surf through some of those. I want us, first of all, to look at chapter 8. Get your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 8, and we're going to find four essential ingredients of gospel gratitude. And just like the pumpkin pie, you don't want to leave out an ingredient. It's not going to turn out well. So you got to have all four of the ingredients. Here's the first ingredient, and honesty about present circumstances, okay? Now, I've told you before, there is no more applicable book in the Bible for those of us living in 2020 than the book of Isaiah. So let's look at some of the present circumstances that were taking place in the lives of the people that Isaiah was writing to. Now, remember in chapter 6, if you can think back to last week, Isaiah gave us the newsflash King Uzziah had died. He said, and in the year, 740, when King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And it later goes on to say, my eyes have seen the King. Not King Uzziah, but the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He found himself in the throne room, right? So he gets this new view of God, a new view of his sin, a new view of God's grace. And then he gets a new mission to go tell the world about what he has seen. And we're all here today reading about it because he was on mission. So after King Uzziah died, there was a new administration coming into office. Did I mention that Isaiah is really practical for people coming into the year 2020? So there was a new administration. There was a new king in office. His name was Ahaz. Now, in order for you to appreciate the Bible, when you hear the word Ahaz, Ahaz, in this sermon, I need you to appropriately boo, because Ahaz was a bad king. So let's work this out, okay? King Ahaz did not do what was right in the Lord. For those of you that are reading the Bible in the last 100 days of 2020, you're going to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 about how bad things were, about the circumstances into which King Ahaz was reigning. He didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and uh, the, the, the moral fabric of the culture began to unravel. There was social injustice, there were riots going on, and there were conspiracy theories because nobody could figure out why all this was happening. And so there were all these things like, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. There's all kinds of information floating around. People were fearful and they were running to these conspiracy theories. And then not only what was happening internally, but what was happening externally. The kingdom was surrounded from the north, the superpower of the day, the nation of Assyria, had formed an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were um, attacking from the north. On the southern border were the Edomites and the Philistines, and they were about to attack from the south. 
And these were the circumstances into which King Ahaz was reigning. He was so bad. Do you know what he did? He began to worship the false gods of the other nations. And one of the practices of the false gods was that you sacrificed your children in the fire. All right? Now, for all of you disobedient children out there, you did not want to live in the country during the time of King Ahaz, okay? Because this was a bad dude, and he was the worst. And Isaiah's job was to tell King Ahaz the truth about God. King Ahaz had a choice. It came down to this. He could either trust a military alliance he could make with Syria, or he could do what Isaiah told him to do, trust the Lord. Let's find out what he did. I'm in Isaiah chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 11. Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. The way of the people was a way of fear. It was a way of idolatry. It was a way of distrust. Don't walk in their way. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Did I mention to you that Isaiah is the most practical, applicable book for people living in 2020. Let me just read that verse one more time. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear. And do not be in dread. Do you see the current circumstances were so bad that people were so in fear, they were running off to all kinds of conspiracy theories. Don't do that. You're God's people. You have another choice. You don't have to fear. Here's another option, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Then skip down to verse 17. Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord. You know what he knows? There's something coming in the future. The Lord is trustworthy. The Lord can deliver. The Lord can move no matter how bad the circumstances. We can be grateful. We can trust him no matter what we see going around us. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. I trust that that's your strategy in 2020. I mean, the reality is things are bad. There's a pandemic. There's racial tension. There's all kinds of things to be worried about in the economy. You may have something personally going on. Maybe somebody you know is sick. Maybe you are sick. Things are bad. We don't deny that reality. But in the midst of the reality, we can join with Isaiah and say, I will wait on the Lord. I'm not going to be afraid of man. 
I'm going to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord drives away fear of man. Knowing that God is all-powerful, He is sovereign, He can be trusted. We can be honest about how hard life is without spiraling into despair. And we will either orient our lives around the fear of God, or we will orient our lives about everything else to be afraid of in 2020. I don't know about you, I want to add this ingredient so I can have a gospel gratefulness. And so let's talk about the second ingredient here. The second ingredient is a trust in the messianic king. And we're going to read about this messianic king in chapter 11. So flip over to chapter 11, if you would. And in chapter 11, the first five verses are all about the trustworthy resume of this coming king. Isaiah sees in his mind a future reality of a future king. He picks up in verse 1 and says this, There shall come, do you see the future nature of it? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. All right, now just hang on a second. Um, if you're a preacher, that's one of the best verses in the Bible. You've got shoot, you've got root, and you've got fruit all in one verse. If you can't preach that, you can't preach, okay? So here we have a vivid image. This is a metaphor that Isaiah is using. It's a word picture. He's trying to paint a picture in your mind of this coming king. Now, this verse in chapter 11 is connected all the way back to the last verse of chapter 6. It's verse 13. And if you can remember, back last week, I introduced you to this. It's the picture that Isaiah saw of a forest. He was picturing the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people, that had grown into this great forest. And yet, because of their sin, judgment was coming. God was going to show up with an axe and chop down the forest. And the only thing that was going to be left was a stump. That's the last verse of chapter 6. Fast forward to chapter 11, and Isaiah picks up the imagery. Now, the last part of chapter 6 says this, But there will be a seed in the stump. It's this glimmer of hope. There's life in the stump. And then in chapter 11, we find out what happens to the stump. It says, there shall come forth a, a, a shoot, a branch. Life will spring up. The seed turns into a shoot. He calls it the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, who was the greatest king of Israel. And so it's connected to this Davidic family line. We would use the language of a family tree. Do you, do you know your family tree? You've got grandmas and grandpas and you've got aunts and uncles and all those different people. You think about that time, uh, think about your family tree at, at, at Thanksgiving time. So Isaiah is using the language of a family tree. You've got Jesse, the grandfather, and then you've got, you know, David, and then down the line, down David's line, way down his line, there's going to be a shoot. There's going to be a grandson. There's going to be someone come from this family. It's going to be a shoot. And that shoot is going to be a branch from its roots. And that 
branch is going to bear fruit, which sounds an awful lot like John chapter 15, when Jesus says, abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branch. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. See, the Bible's all connected here together. And so he's presenting to us someone who's going to come out of this family that's going to be a true and better king over this people that has been so idolatrous and has come under the judgment of God. What Isaiah is saying is there's a future hope for what God is going to do with this people. Look at chapter 2, he de- or verse 2. He describes the character of this coming king. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He's introducing us to a king that will have the character qualities that every other king in Israel's past has lacked. Because of their lack of character, they've come into judgment. But because of the character of the coming king, they're going to be the recipients of God's blessing. He says the spirit of the Lord. That indicates that he is sent from the Lord with his approval, with his authority, and with his power. He is one who has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Don't you love to get around people that have some wisdom and understanding? Don't you love it when somebody in charge, your boss, a parent, maybe a, a an elected official has some wisdom and understanding about what's going on? He says this, this shoot, this person in the Davidic line is going to have discernment. He's going to be able to diagnose problems. He's going to be able to direct the heart and get to the heart of the issue. It says he's going to have the spirit of counsel and might. You ever feel like you need counseling? You ever get around a good counselor and he just kind of clears up the picture for you, offers the right solutions? It says this this messianic king is going to lead with a with a counsel and a might. It's actually speaking of kind of a military strategy, a military strength. He always creates the winning strategy. He always calls the right play and he always ensures victory against any opponent. And then it says he's gonna have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It just keeps getting better and better. He has the ability to distinguish between truth and lies. He knows the truth. And then he executes the truth and applies it into life. Now, we've already talked about how bad the circumstances are. Isaiah says if you could get your eyes off of present circumstances and onto the future coming king, it would change your entire perspective. How would it change your perspective on how you live if you believe that into this world where human leaders fail us, God has sent King Jesus to lead us by the Spirit of the Lord with infinite wisdom, complete understanding, irrefutable counsel, unstoppable might, and limitless knowledge. All in favor of electing King Jesus? Yeah, that's the leader we want. And until he comes and establishes his reign, we're going to have to hope that he is in complete control while other human leaders are in positions of authority. Look at verse 3. He goes on to describe his character. It says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Do you see the word delight in verse three? It's a great word. The Hebrew word behind that English word, it actually is rooted in our understanding of a sense of smell. Thursday, around noon, did your sense of smell draw you into a kitchen? Was there some delight happening? Was there some pleasure as you began to smell what was in the room? Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just do what's right. He delights to do what's right. It's not just outward obedience. It's the pleasure he receives. He's drawn to, he's attracted to what is right every single time. And he doesn't judge by only what his eyes see or what his ears hear. You know, for us, we just kind of have to kind of process the information that our eyes see and our ears hear. And there's so much information. You can read one article and it says this, and you read another article and it's the complete opposite. Who do we believe? Jesus doesn't have to read articles. Jesus knows the truth. Jesus sees through all of the fake news. He sees the all, through all of the conspiracy theories and he leads us through all that. Look at verse four. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Do you remember how I told you that there was social injustice going on? That was the present reality. Those who were strong were taking advantage of those who were weak. Those who had power were not using their power to empower the weak. That's a problem in any society. It actually invites the justice of God. It says when he comes, he's going to judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins because he is all about what is just. So there's the resume of a messianic king and the the, the, the choice that's laid out for us is will you trust him? And Isaiah is not just writing to King Ahaz. Oh, you missed your cue. Isaiah is not just writing to King Ahaz. Isaiah is writing for us who are still waiting, looking for this messianic king to come. Now, in one sense, that prophecy was fulfilled about 700 years later, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he came to establish that shoot began to bear fruit. And yet we are still waiting for the ultimate climax of that messianic king. We have a hope in a promised future. So the story continues here, not just describing the king, but describing what will happen in his kingdom. Notice verse six. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. All right, now just get a picture. You're, you're on a safari. Um, Andrea and I were watching like some program on the Discovery Channel this week and like within 90 seconds, the wolf was not friendly with the lamb. Uh, the, the wolf was dragging the lamb away to eat the poor little lamb. And we couldn't watch the rest of the program because it was socially unjust to watch what was happening to the weak. This is the way the world works. The, power, the powerful eat the weak. That's the present realities. 
But the promised future looks like verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat that he would otherwise have eaten. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. A little child shall lead them. What would happen if you put the little child in the middle of the safari? The little child's going to get eaten, but not in the future kingdom. Look at verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Not eat the ox. Do you get the picture here? It's vivid imagery. It's a metaphor of what we're promised in the future. Let me ask you this question. What images come to mind when you think of heaven? Where did you get your picture of heaven? Now, if right now you're thinking of heaven like you're on a cloud, in a diaper, playing a harp, hovering far above the earth. You know, the earth is down here. It's all violent and wicked and gross. And it's like, I just, heaven would be just getting as far away from that as possible. So we, we kind of picture it as this ethereal thing, just so far away from the earth. If that's your picture of heaven, you didn't get it from the Bible. We think about dying and going to heaven. When we think about heaven, the Bible describes heaven coming to earth. The picture here is God recreating the earth the way that he originally made it. So if you want to know about what heaven is going to be like, you don't just need to read about the last things. You don't just read the last book in the Bible, Revelation, you need to read the first few pages of the first book which describe this garden where lions and leopards and ox and wolves and lambs and elephants and donkeys all get along. Even Republicans and Democrats. The predator and the prey become friends hostility is removed. Things that hurt will be no more. That's the picture of heaven. It's a new heaven, a new earth, a new garden of Eden. It's a new creation. All things will be made new. This is the hope we have in a promised future. And so in some sense, we're going to experience this. Look at verse 8. This blows me away. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. You got a picture in your mind of that going on? And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. You kids out there want to ask for a Christmas gift? Ask for a cobra. Mom and dad, how many of you are getting a cobra for the kid that asked? You're probably not going to do that because the cobra is not going to play nice with the little child. But in the new heaven and the new earth, it's amazing. God describes this place where the serpent and the child can play together. Do you remember what happened back in the Garden of Eden? God created this wonderful place where there was no hurt, there was no dying, there was no death, there was no sorrow, there was no pain, there was perfect fellowship. But then 
a serpent came into the garden and the serpent played with the minds of men. And then the serpent bit us with a lie that God can't be trusted. You gotta trust yourself. And ever since the world that we have lived in, the present reality that we live in, it's broken. The world has been a place of decay. It's been a place of deadly poison. It's been a place of danger ever since. But when this messianic king comes, he will crush the power of the serpent. He will restore the created order. It'll restore us back to a new Eden. The hostility between the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent will be removed. Think about it. In a world that abuses and neglects children that we currently live in, there will come a day when King Jesus will ensure that the most vulnerable child can play with his pet cobra without getting bit. All in favor of a new heaven, new earth? All in favor of a new Eden? Sign me up. If you're a Christian, that's where our hope comes from. And yet we look forward to these realities. Can you believe that? The test for all of us is, is whether or not we believe that the word of God is true and this messianic king who's gonna set up a messianic kingdom is actually going to implement what he says is true. Look at verse nine. It says, in that day, they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters come cover the sea. Where is this gonna happen? On the earth. Now it's gonna be a new earth, new heaven, new earth, new creation, new Eden. But it's gonna be a place that's filled with the knowledge of the Lord, not a spot on the earth, not a geographical territory on the earth, but the entire earth. Everyone in every place will have a complete, intimate, personal knowledge of the Lord. Everyone in every place will know the Lord personally. The knowledge of the Lord will saturate the earth. Right now, we've got such a limited understanding and a limited knowledge of God, and we have so many questions, and God seems like a mystery to us. There's coming a day where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth, and that is the future hope in spite of our present circumstances. And then look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So verse 10 says he's the root of Jesse. Verse one said he was the shoot of the stump of Jesse. So the question is, is he the shoot or the root? And the answer is, yes. Do you, do you understand what Isaiah is telling us, this messianic king is the root cause of his own family tree from which he will shoot forth, bringing the fulfillment of all that God has promised. The fruit comes from the shoot that comes from the root. Jesus is the one that spun all this into place in the first place. He's the one that gave birth to Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and the whole family line, and eventually Jesse, and David, and later on Jesus comes in Bethlehem, but he initiated it all. He's the root and the shoot. Your brain should be 
melting right now because the preaching is so good. The last thing here is a song. What do we do while we wait for this thing to happen? Like, when's it coming? Some of us are just like, man, if I can just get to 2021. Really? Do you think Isaiah was looking at the present circumstances and saying, man, if we can just get to the year 600, you know? No, he's looking to something far in the future here. What do we do while we wait? There must be a song for an ever-present holy God. And that's why we've got to get to chapter 12. By the way, that was all introduction. I really wanted to preach chapter 12. So chapter 12 tells us about this song that we've got to sing until we get there. Notice verse one. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you. You talk about thanksgiving. I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, for for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Notice he says, in that day. He's looking to something future. It looks forward to a promised future. We sing on this day in 2020 until we can experience that day. It's the song that builds the bridge between that day and this day. So this day, We've got to sing our faces off, which we're going to do here in just a minute. So save up some stuff there, okay? So we're going to need to sing this song. But what are we going to sing about? We're going to sing a song of thanksgiving. All right, so on Thursday, did you do the thing that you do on, on Thanksgiving? Did, you, did the father of the family say, before we dive into the food, what do we have to be thankful for? And you all listed some things. How many of you did that thing? You got to do that thing. Come on, y'all. You got to do the thing. On Thanksgiving, you got to list some things that you're thankful for, right? So, what'd you thank God for? Was anywhere on your list something that sounded like this? God has turned his anger away from me. And he has comforted me instead. Did that make your list? Or did you just thank God for the dressing? Those are incomparable. Our thanksgiving is rooted in the fact that though we were the object of God's wrath because of our sin, and we're hopeless to do anything about it. God turned his anger away from me and toward his son on the cross. And Jesus experienced the anger of God so that I could experience the comfort, the grace, the forgiveness of God. Give thanks to the Lord. And if you've not experienced that kind of thanksgiving, I would question whether you've experienced that type of salvation. He goes on in verse two. He says, behold, I've told you this before. Anytime you see a behold in the Bible, that's supposed to be an alert to you. What's gonna be said next is gonna take your breath away. You're never gonna believe it. Behold, God is my salvation. 
I will trust. I will not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song, for he has become my salvation. Isaiah is quoting Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. He looked back at what God had done in delivering Israel from enslavement in Egypt through the Red Sea, bringing them into a new promised land. Isaiah says, if he's done it once, he can do it again. Isaiah knows because of Israel's sin, they are going to be exiled in judgment. They're gonna once again be enslaved by Babylon. And yet he looks forward and says, if God brought us out one, he can bring us out of another. And so he reaches back, he grabs a verse that Moses wrote in the second chapter of the Bible. He inserts it into his song and we, he says, we're holding on to the promise that God can bring about another exodus. And so Isaiah is thinking about about a hundred years ahead of time when God is gonna bring them out of Babylon back into the land. But for you and I, that happened for you and I in the timeline, that already happened. But we are still looking for another exodus where God will part the waters of judgment and we will enter into the promise of the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Eden. That's what we look forward to where the messianic king takes his rightful place as the ruler of his kingdom on the new earth. So our songs of praise take our eyes off of present circumstances and they put them on future realities where we celebrate this king who's established his kingdom. You and I right now as Christians, we are living in exile among the nations of the earth. And we are waiting for the day when God will part the sea, his kingdom will come, and we will be personally with him in his kingdom. He has become my salvation. Notice the four different characteristics of someone who has experienced salvation. He says, I will trust, I will not be afraid, I will have an inner strength, and I will have an external song. Do you like to sing? I didn't ask if people around you like to hear you sing. I said, do you like to sing? If you are a Christian, you should like to sing. The problem for us in America is we've delegated, we've delegated our singing to the professionals. We just kind of have this American Idol thing, like put them up there. Those are the, those are the singers. If I could sing like Brent and Brooke and, and Hannah, I would sing, but I can't sing like them. No. The song is an in, comes from an internal strength and you, you can't keep it on the inside once you've experienced this kind of salvation. Look at verse three. With joy, you will draw from the waters of salvation. Isaiah changes his language from singular, where he was using a singular pronoun, I will give thanks. And now he's saying you, plural, all y'all, should draw from the wells of salvation. He, he says, God has become my salvation, 
past tense, but then he says, you will future draw from the wells of salvation. Listen, getting saved is not like taking a bath on the day that you got saved. Once you've had the bath, you joyfully swim in the ocean of God's sustaining grace, sustaining grace every day for the rest of your lives. We draw from the waters of salvation. You know why? Because we get thirsty and we get dirty. And so every day we draw from the wells of salvation to wash our sin, to quench our thirst. Because I don't know about you, but 2020 sure seems like we've been living in a desert. But if God has become your salvation, you keep going back to the well. He keeps quenching your thirst. He keeps washing your sin. Can I ask you a question? Have you been saved? Has God become your salvation? Again, it's a matter of choices. Ahaz could either look to Syria, a rival nation for salvation, or he could look to God. For you, there's a hundred menu options every day that promise to save you. They're, they're on your television, they're on your phone, they're apps, they're at your bank, they're at the mall, they're your friends, they're, they're your own intellect, your own personality, your good looks, your athletic ability, all of that. It says, trust me, I'll save you. God's word says, God has become my salvation exclusively. You don't add God to everything else you're looking to to save you. You renounce your trust in every other substitute savior and you make the declaration, God is my salvation. He's the only one who can save me. And give thanks to the Lord. He's turned his anger away and I can trust him. Look at verse four. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Verse four ends with this, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Do you remember last week after Isaiah got a new view of God, new view of sin, new view of grace, what was the last thing he got? He got a new mission. God says, who shall go for me? Isaiah lifted his hand. Here am I, send me. Send me to those people that don't know you. Send me to those people that don't know your name. Send me, I will tell them the deeds of the Lord. And so he's coming right back to that in chapter 12, saying make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Could I just take some time to do that here for a second? Let me just, all right, sermon, just put the pause button on the sermon. I want to invite you into a staff meeting at Gospel City Church, okay? I want you to go with me in the time machine back to Tuesday morning this week, 11 a.m. Now, um, normally we would be meeting in the same room at the same time, but we've been social distancing and we've actually just kind of been in our own space and we've been using the miracle of grace that is 
Zoom call. So here is the Zoom call on Tuesday at 11 o'clock. Now, not all the staff were here. There were some other assignments, but, but here's a picture of, of our Zoom call on Tuesday. You may have noticed already Josh here. Uh, we had a little trouble discerning whether or not he was a grizzly bear or grizzly Adams, but we put Josh uh, right there in the picture. It made us all smile and laugh. So here we are on the Zoom call and just, we did the, we did the thing. We did the thing Tuesday before Thanksgiving that you do. So what do we have to be grateful for this year? And I, it's like, guess what? It didn't take us long for an hour off the top of our heads, person by person. We were listing all of the deeds the Lord has done in and through Gospel City Church. Now, I know that some of you think we only work on Sundays. I know that some of you that are at home, you kind of probably even may think, well, I'm, the church is probably closed and, and there's just probably not a whole lot of activity going around because you've just probably suspended everything. Hey, can I just let you know, uh, way back in March when everything just kind of shut down, we were shut down for like 15 weeks and couldn't meet on a Sunday. Um, we made a commitment as a staff that the mission of glorifying God and making disciples is never suspended. As a matter of fact, it's more essential than it's ever been. And so we hit the accelerator on our mission and we determined that we were gonna live by one of our core values. As a staff, we have seven core values. One of them is this, and we created these a couple of years ago. Uh, one of them is this, we will adapt in pursuit of excellence. Well, guess what 2020 has given us an opportunity to do? to adapt, that simply means we think change is good. We actually told that to ourselves. Change is good. Most churches think change is bad, right? It's like, well, we're just, okay, this is an opportunity to change. So I don't know what's been going on in your life for the last six months, but everything around the church has changed. We've had to adapt, not the least of which is we've had to shift uh, our in-person gatherings at times to uh, online. We've had to leverage technology. Here's the great thing. In March, about a week before everything shut down, there was a UPS that truck that drove up to the church and delivered for us things that we had already purchased related to technology and cameras and studio equipment. And then we had to find people that could actually learn how to run these things. And so I don't know if you appreciate this or not, but right now, even while I'm speaking and while you're watching from home, all the things that are making this service happen are related to those types of things that we've had to adapt to. There's an army of volunteers behind this wall that are doing incredible things so that we can get the message beyond the walls of this church. We were grateful for that. We were grateful for the, um, the, the multiplied impact, literally hundreds and thousands of people watching in places outside of this room, even though in our eyes, it looks like there's less of a crowd here. There's actually a greater crowd than there's ever been leaning in and worshiping us in so many different places, at home, online. We were grateful for the way that we decided we're going to have to connect with people. If they're not going to come to us, we're going to have to find a way to go get to them. So we were on the phone. We shifted to, 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 to caring for people. You've already heard about our care strategy. We've got to connect. We've got to assess. We've got to respond. We've got to encourage. And so you've probably gotten a phone call from a pastor as we've tried to search you 
out and our small groups and the small group leaders there, about 40 of them doing what they could to stay connected. We've heard great stories about that. All that's now under the leadership of Tyler Downing, which we're so grateful for. At the beginning of all this, we actually added staff in a season where other churches were thinking we might have to lay off some staff because we don't know what's, what's going to happen with giving. Are people going to continue to give? Is there going to be enough money? Are we going to have to have salary reductions? We actually added staff. One of those staff members was a guy named Brent Thomas who was leading you in worship. That's his side gig. He actually is our student discipleship director and he incorporated a whole new strategy about how we can target middle school and high school separately because their needs are so different, created a YouTube channel so he could reach them in ways that we hadn't been able to reach them before. You know our incredible staff of volunteers um, that uh, disciple our children on a Sunday morning. Uh, We've had to really... um, Uh, train them and find different ways to connect with our children. One of the biggest events that we do around here, as you know, happens in the summer vacation Bible school with like 400 kids. And we had to shift that to backyard Bible bash. And we weren't able to have 400 kids this year. We had 600 kids this year because we shifted it to all over the city. So grateful for all of that is a way to adapt. You know, we've leaned into discipleship tools. We've created a discipleship pathway that you've heard about. We've created this personal discipleship plan that you're hearing about. You know, we kicked off the ministry year in September with Four days together in the word here and in prayer with Daniel Henderson. And and we kicked off that time uh, in prayer in this room. We're gonna have more of that going forward. Monthly fresh encounters, as you've heard about. I challenge you to spend the last hundred days together in the word. How many of you are doing that? How many of you are doing doing together in the word? hundred days in the word. So uh, I know you, that's a challenge. Keep going, you're almost there. Pretty soon you're gonna get the New Testament. You're gonna discover how small the New Testament is compared to everything you've read. It's actually the last uh, 21 days. And so we've done that. Um, there have been hope groups that have met here on, on uh, Monday nights. This place is filled with people that just need extra care and attention and God's raised up leaders for that. Our men's ministry under the direction of Tyler Holder um, have invaded every Martin's grocery store every Saturday morning and then here on Wednesday morning for small groups and mentoring. We had our first men's summit, speaking of spiritual disciplines. There were 17 men that went to Puerto Rico on a mission trip. We're not gonna be able to send 17 um, this next year. We're gonna send 30 this next year that are already signed up and ready to go and are trained for that. Our women's ministry under Aaron's direction. I don't know if you know this, but the last event we actually had in the old worship center was the women's arbor time. That was the last event. We didn't know it was gonna be the last event in that room, but it was. There have been 80 women who were uh, together doing one-to-one mentorship during the course of this time. Um, our young adults have been able to meet together, young adults, singles, young adults. Many of them don't have the connection of family. They connect with one another. And so we've met in parks. We've launched new groups so that they can connect together. One of our goals at the beginning of this was to demystify our missions, efforts, and all the places in the world where our church reaches. And so up on this stage, really in the last 12 weeks, you've seen just about every missionary that's in every part of the world. Uh, This is Billy and Jen Nelson that were here a few weeks ago. And they're in Liberia and Senegal with Africans reaching Africa. We've had Mark and Karen Patton up here that are in Hungary. We've got the Rhine Kings in Prague. And we're reaching into places where other churches were having to like strip back. We were 
ramping up our support to get to the hardest places in some unreached people groups. Did I mention to you that we launched two churches this year? We um, gave birth to twins on September the 13th. And so um, you saw on that day, we sent out Pastor Stephen Love and about, he stole about 60 of our best people who went with him to plant Redemption City Church and then on the same day, Pastor Ben Hurt was able uh, to launch the church, Gospel Community Church. They're now in Goshen. Uh, report on that last week. God sent them a wonderful worship pastor who's joined the team. We're so thrilled about um, um, the way that God's building his church in different places. And we've resourced and trained and invested as a result of our um, partnership with Gospel uh, with Great Commission Collective and Sin Network. The eyes of the church planting world are on our church. They wanna know how we're doing this. And I'm doing my best to throw up my arms. I don't know how we do it. We just trust the Lord and we got good people. So pray for us. That's, that's our strategy. While all that's happened, this place has changed. We didn't know on March the 15th when we had to move out of our previous worship center that we would never have another worship center in that place again, but we would open up this building on July the 5th. And all of that has taken place because of your generosity and giving and people have come. We see so many new faces and you've seen our new face. I haven't maybe seen your face if you're at home yet, but we would love to see you. And because of that, the gospel has gone out. People have responded in repentance and faith. And just a few weeks ago, we had baptisms up here, people declaring new life in Christ. So I don't know what you've been doing during the pandemic. We have been on mission. And I'm so grateful for all of the leaders that have partnered together and worked together with us. We've got an incredible team of elders who are aligned and focused. We meet every other Wednesday night for about three hours. And and we talk about you and we talk about how to disciple you and we talk about how to steward the resources. We have to make hard decisions on what we're gonna do with reopening church and what we're gonna do with the resources God's given us. And God has been so faithful. We, we raised up and trained four new elders and as soon as we got them on the team, we sent them right back out of here to plant those two churches. And one of those elders was our first African-American pastor, Ron Perry. So God is doing incredible things. I say all that as a way of making known the deeds of the Lord among you peoples so that you'll know that you're a part of something that God is doing, building his kingdom. We've not gone into survival mode. We've not taken our foot off of the accelerator. We've not recoiled. We are not in retreat. We are investing more than we ever have in the mission that God has given us. And I hope that that brings you a level of joy. Back to chapter 12. I want you to get your eyes on chapter 12. Once again, I want to read to you the last two verses of this song. Look at verse five. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Make known his deeds and make let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, if you can't sing, a shout will do just fine. Shout, raise the volume, sing a little louder. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Here's the thing, Isaiah has talked a lot about what God has done in the past. He's talked about the Exodus. He's talked about the, new, the creation. 
We, we can trust Him because God has been faithful in the past. And we know He'll be faithful to fulfill His promises in the future. We can trust Him. But what do we do now? Notice what He says. The last thing He says to conclude the whole section is, this same God who did all that stuff in the past and is going to do all that stuff in the future, He is in your midst. He's right in the middle of your stuff. He is right here, right now, ready to receive our praises and our thanksgiving. And if you've heard anything at all today that would make you want to thank and praise and worship this great God, then let it come out of your mouth right now. Don't delegate your singing to these people up here. If we do this right, you're gonna be louder than them. Let's lift up our voices.